And uh, we are in week number six of our sermon series, Hashtag. And uh, uh, man, what an incredible series that it has been. Basically, um, the Lord birthed this series because I was uh, I read an article about the top trending hashtags for 2018. And just caught my attention. And, you know, the Lord was saying, you know, look, what about this one? And what about this one? And what about this one? So basically what we've been doing is we've been taking some of the top trending hashtags from social media. And we're looking at God's word and to what he actually says about those. So in week number one, we talked about hashtag love. In week number two, we talked about hashtag no filter. Hashtag uh, number three. Week number three is hashtag TBT or throwback Thursday. And then the last couple of weeks for week number four and five, we looked at the hashtag follow for follow, where we were talking about uh, Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, where he says, follow me as I follow Christ. And, and, and we looked at why he was able to make that statement, and it was because his mission was the same as Jesus's mission. And so we looked at what Jesus's mission was, which was to seek and save. And he gave that to us uh, in the Great Commission as go and make. So the mission of seek and save became go and make. It's the one in, of the same. And so we talked about that in the first part of follow for follow. And then last week we did part number two. And we looked at two values that we need if we are going to be a go and make people. Which value number one was is that we have to value our relationship with Jesus. We can't just act like it's just a, a little skin tag to our lives. But we actually, yeah, it's kind of gross to think of a skin tag. And that's not how you should think about your relationship with Jesus because you should value it because it is the central part of who you are. And then the second value that we looked at is that everyone matters to God. Everyone. Everyone. Even the person that you dislike the most, they matter to God. Even the political people that you do not agree with they matter to God. I know it's hard for us to comprehend that, but it's a value that we have to have if we're going to become a go and make people. Well, this week, I want to take a look at a top trending hashtag, and it's hashtag motivation. Hashtag motivation. Now, typically, when people put this on their social media posts, they're flexing their bicep, they're showing you their workout. There, that, that's where that whole hashtag motivation comes from. Now, I'm not going to show you a workout photo of myself with the hashtag motivation because, well, I just have a hard time taking one because I'm never in that environment. I need to be in that environment. Maybe I should look at some of these motivation uh, uh, things on, 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 on social media and get encouraged to get back into the gym. But let's look at the definition of motivation this morning. Here's the definition. All right? The motivation is this, is that it's the general desire or willingness of someone to do something. The general desire or willingness. Okay? So it's a desire. It's a willingness to do something. Here's the question I have is what are you motivated to? to do. Maybe today you sit here and you're like, well, I'm not even motivated at all. What is it that motivates you or would motivate you? Now, here's some synonyms of motivation. Enthusiasm, 
drive, ambition, initiative, determination, enterprise, a sense of purpose, motivation. I believe that God wants to motivate you today. But how? How does he desire to motivate you today? I believe it's through a word called confidence. Not confidence in who you are, but confidence in who he is. Amen. Now here's the definition of confidence. Full trust. Belief in the powers, trustworthiness, and reliability of a person or thing. Okay, so to have confidence in God is to believe that he has the power that he says that he has. Amen. To have confidence in God is to believe that he is trustworthy. Mm -hmm. That what he says is going to happen. Yeah. That the promises that he's made will come to pass. Yeah. And it goes into the reliability that you can rely on him at all costs. There's never a time where God is not going to be faithful. It's not in his character. He says, even when you're unfaithful, I remain faithful. So you can rely on him at all times, at all costs. Now, when it comes to our faith, we have things that fight against our confidence in him, in God. And therefore leaves us unmotivated. So I believe that the enemy desires to attack the confidence that you have in God by whispering into your ear, telling you that he's not going to come through today. Oh, look, you pray, but you're not getting the answer that you desire. So therefore, God must not really be who he says that he is. You've got people that are telling you in your life that why do you have confidence in this God? Why? Maybe they don't even need to ask the question because we have already lost confidence in who he is. The world tells us that we should not have confidence in God. The world that we live in, this country that we live in, people are saying have faith in other things outside of God. Our confidence in who God is is being attacked. You might be saying, well, I don't know about that. Well, let me, let, me, let me read you an article. And I came across this article. It was done by the Barna Research Group, and it's called The State of the Church in 2016. Now listen to what they say. Most people in this country identify as Christians. Okay, 73% of Americans, according to this study that was done in 2016, considered themselves Christians. 73%. That's a lot. Okay. 20% claim no faith at all. That includes atheists and agnostics. Uh, uh, and then 6% identify with faiths like, faiths like Islam, Buddhism, Judaism, Hinduism. And 1%, they're just, I, I don't know. They're unsure. You always got to have those kind of people, right? I'm just unsure. I don't know what to believe. Some days I believe this, some days I believe that. Now, not only do most Americans identify as Christian, but most people who identify themselves as Christian also say that faith is very important to them. So out of that 73%, 52% strongly agree that faith is important to them, and 21% somewhat agree. So for the majority, it, it, it's like they, they, they consider themselves Christian, 
and they consider faith to be important. But here is where things get a little bit interesting. It says this in the article, even though a majority of Christians or a majority of Americans identify as Christians and say religious faith is very important in their life, these huge proportions belie the much smaller number of Americans who regularly practice their faith. Now, they're about to give you what their barometer is on somebody that is a practicing Christian. Okay? Now, I, I have a feeling that Barna had to come up with this uh, set of things uh, just to, I, I think, make their research more like mouth-dropping, open type of feeling when you read this. Okay? So when a variable like church attendance is added to the mix, a majority becomes the minority. When a self-identified Christian attends a religious service at least once a month, so here's the first criteria for being a practicing Christian is that you attend church at least once a month. It says their faith is very important in their life and that they consider themselves a Christian. That is what Barna is considering in their research as a practicing Christian. After applying this, that number of 73% falls to 31%. 31%. So what it is saying is, is that 31% of people in our country today are what Barna considers by their measure of attending church once a month, saying that you're a Christian, and saying that faith is important. That identifies you as a practicing Christian. Can I just tell you? I think the bar has been set just a tad low yes. in that definition of a practicing Christian. So let's just think conservatively here and say that, you know what, another 10% would fall off of that number. 11% so we can get a round number. And, and I'm, I'm being generous, probably. But that means that only 20% of Americans are really genuinely practicing Christians in the fact that they consider themselves not just faith important, but their relationship with Jesus important, that they're committing themselves to growing in that relationship through means such as reading their word, praying, and all of this. Now, here's the thing, is that the article was written, and it gets to a point where it talks about how our nation is becoming more and more post-Christian, regardless of the fact that 73% of people say that they identify themselves as Christian, because, here's the thing, like, uh, it says, it goes on to say that um, another way that Barna measures religious decline is through the post-Christian metric. If an individual meets 60% or more of a set of factors, which includes things like disbelief in God or identifying as atheist or agnostic, and that they do not participate in practices such as Bible reading, prayer, and church attendance, they are considered post-Christian. And based on that metric, 48% of Americans are post-Christian. Now, that's back in 2016. So we're three years removed from that study. So probably those numbers are low, and they are probably a little higher today. To me, here's the thing, is that I believe that a lot of people in church have bought into Barna's metric for being a practicing Christian. Now, what do I mean by that? I believe that we have a lot of people 
who were being misguided into believing that just because they attend a religious service once a month, say that they're Christians and say, oh yeah, faith is important to me, that they think that everything is okay. Now look, I'm all about preaching feel good, and I'm hoping that today you will get a feel good at some point. But I have to lay the groundwork here to motivate us. Because here's the problem, is that we feel, we hear, here, here's what happens. We, we think, oh man, 73% is Christian, so I can just stay in the seat. 73% say they're Christian, so I don't have to do anything. A lot of times we treat our relationship with Jesus like Monopoly. We get our jail, get out of jail free card, we pass go, collect our $200, and then we just, we're just going to sit back and relax and let our properties collect money instead of getting out there and doing something. But more than doing something, being something. So there is an attack against the confidence that we have in God. And part of that attack is, it's like, look, man, the enemy wants nothing more to whisper this into your ear. Man, 73% say they're Christians. Don't worry about sharing your faith. Don't worry about getting out there and doing something like that Easter outreach. I mean, golly, everybody in Covington Vanderbilt, they're, they're a believer. Everybody in that area, man, they, they, they know who Jesus is. Man, everybody in, in, in that area, they at least, I, I know for a fact, attend church at least once a month. Can, can, I, can I just tell you that as of the last census, I mean, 50% of our parish says that they don't attend church. 50%. So you know some people are lying. So there ain't no 50%. It's higher than that. And then here's the other thing. And, and, and you've heard me say this like a, a bajillion times, and I'll continue to say it. The Baptists did a research study into this area, into this particular parish, and as far as it, it pertains to our state, and they're saying, this was like a year ago, so we're, we're already a year into this, so they are, said a year ago that five years St. Tammany's Parish would become the least reached parish in our state. Is it because we've just gotten too comfortable being who we are being Instead of being who God has called us to be, which is a go and make people. We have to get back to a place of confidence in God and what he has called us to do, which is to bring heaven to this earth. That's what he's called us to do. You know, Peter calls us a royal priesthood. You know what the priests did in the Old Testament? They were the... They were the go-between. They were the conduit between God's presence and the people. And so now we have the ability, because of what Christ has done for us, to become a royal priesthood. We are the conduits now. We are the ones that connect the people that don't have a connection with God to God. We are the ones that have the ability to bring heaven to this earth. Here's what Hebrews chapter 6 says in verses 18 through 20. It says, so God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it's impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great what? Confidence. As we hold to the hope that lies before us. 
This hope is a, a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. Jesus has already gone in there for us. He has become our eternal high priest in the, or, in the order of Melchizedek. Here's the thing. What this is saying is that Jesus has already made a way where there was no way for you and I to step into the curtain of the most holy place to become who he's called us to become so that we can be who he desires for us to be outside of these four walls, not inside these four walls. It's not like you just swipe your card when you come in here and automatically we turn into that 73% that identify as Christian. But then when we leave, we swipe that card again and now we become a part of the, uh, what, 52% or 42% that, that just go to church once a month. We have got to get motivated. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like we got people out there telling us that the world's going to end in 12 years. Right. Right. I'd love to tell them, you know what? You might be right. Yeah. You might be a little too long. Right. Right. Because there is a very real possibility that Jesus is going to come back before those 12 years. And here's the thing, is what's going to happen to the people that we say we love, that we say we care about, that are outside of these four walls, that are going to hell, and if Jesus were to come back right now, they are not going with us. How would you feel about that now? We have to get motivated. We have to get motivated to become a go and make people. The days of playing games as this thing called church is over. The way church has been done has got to change. There is something that is happening, something that is shifting, that we have to get back to the early model of how things were done. You guess what? You know what the early church considered a practicing believer was one that met every single day. One that devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. One that gave. One that shared. One that went out and shared their faith with others. And guess what the results were? People were added to them daily. We live in a day and time where we just say, if we add one a year, we're excited. Guess what? I'm not excited any longer. I just, it, it just crawls my skin every time we have an opportunity like this. And I look out and I am knowing without a shadow of a doubt, there ain't no lost people in this place. In order for us to be a go and make people, we have to hold on to this truth. And that truth is, is that God has given us his promise and his oath. And because of that, we have confidence. And there's a lot of promises that God has made to those who believe in him. A lot. I can't tell you the exact number. But I'm about to read you a passage that has seven in them alone. How crazy is that? I mean, in, in, in ten verses, you're going to get seven promises from God. That's ten verses. Just a short little passage of scripture and there's seven promises that are in there. This is Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 37. Now, and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those that love God and are called according to his purpose for them. There's promise number one. 
He's promised that he will work everything out for the good. Now, 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 too many times we portray this on everybody. That promise is not for everybody. That promise is for somebody that is in a committed relationship to him, that love him and are called according to his purpose. But now let me take it a step further because then a lot of times as believers, we get really excited about this verse, don't we? I mean, when we read this, we're like, yeah, man, everything's going to work together for good. So it doesn't matter if i got a hellacious day tomorrow. He's going to work it all out together for the good. You know, now here's, here, here's something that God uh, posed to me. Maybe I'm the last one to, to, to get this, but, but maybe not. He said, Matt, whose definition of good are we going by in this verse? Are we going by what your definition of good is? Or are we going by what my definition of good is? Because see, as believers, we get caught up in this verse and we think, man, oh yeah, man, he's going to work everything out to the good. To the good! It's the way that I define good, though. And so then when it doesn't happen the way that we've defined good, then we're like, God, you said everything was going to work out together for the good. Now let me ask you something for those of you that have been in the faith for any amount of time. How many of you have been through a situation where you're like, I, and when I was in it, I was like, how in the world can this be good? How in the world can this be good? Then you get six months, a year removed from it. You look back and you're like, man, I wouldn't want it any other way. You didn't think that it was good six months to a year ago, but you're thinking it's great now. Why can't we just live life in such a way? And listen, I'm not preaching like I got it all together. I'm not preaching like I excel at all of this because I don't. But what I am saying is why can't Matt Donnelly get to a place where he just trusts God in every single situation? I'm not saying we can't have days where we just say, man, this stinks. This is just a ball full of crap. Right? Like, 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 why can't we just have a day like that? We can, but on the other end of that statement, we need to say, but God, I'm trusting and I believe because of the promise you made to me that this will turn out to the good based on how you define good. Verse 29, for God knew his people in advance and he chose them to become like his son so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, he called them to come to him. And having called them, he gave them right standing with himself. That's promise number two. And having given them right standing, he gave them his glory. Promise number three. Now, if you read some translations, some of them use this word predestined in there. And we get caught up in that whole theological debate and all this kind of stuff. Can I just say this? That in God's, that when, when he sent his son Jesus. He did not send Jesus to save just the people in the A through G last name block and then forget the rest of y'all. He sent his son for every single person. Now, God is beyond our capability of thought. Eternity is beyond our capability of thought because we think in terms of time. We think in terms of human. So we don't think like we, we cannot comprehend eternity. We can't comprehend what God is like and how he knows the beginning versus the end. And he knows what's going to happen to you tomorrow. But somehow we still have free choice. We can't comprehend all of that. So we don't need to get all hooked up on this whole thing about, well, you know what? You know, God chose me to be a believer, so I'm just going to live like hell. And, you know, he's going to choose me to be that way. And so, da-da-da-da-da. 
Or, you know what, God didn't choose me, so I'm just going to live however I want to live. Guess what? He chose all of us when he sent his son Jesus. He chose all of us. The real problem and real issue that we got to take with is what are we choosing? What are we choosing? And see, when we, he's already chosen you, he's already chosen me, but when we choose him, we get that promise of standing with him right before him. We get that promise of he's going to give his glory to us. Now, verse 31, what shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? That is promise number four. Verse 32, since he did not give, uh, since he did not spare even his own son, but he gave them up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Promise number five, who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one, for God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us, and he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean that he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake, we are killed every day. We are slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all of these things. Okay, I skipped promise number six, which is nothing can separate us from the love of God. Here's promise number seven. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. Now, that's seven. This is just that brief period of scripture. But I want to focus in on one for the remainder of our time. And that is Romans 8.31. What shall we say about such wonderful things as this? Or as these, if God is for us, who can ever be against us? Now, the first thing that we should take notice is, is this question that Paul opens this scripture with, which is, what shall we say about such wonderful things as these? This is Paul's way of saying, for what I've written in the first seven and a half chapters of Romans, what shall you say about these things? What are you going to say about these things? Here's the first thing that I think we should we should we should get from that. Because what Paul did in chapters one through seven and half of eight is he's given the people of Rome a revelation. And when he asks this question, what he is saying to those people that he wrote to then, and he is saying to us today, is that revelation requires response. Revelation requires response. Paul did not ask, shall we say something? Instead, he asked, what shall we say? He's not asking the question, giving you a choice in the matter of responding or not responding. He asked the question in such a way that demands a response because revelation demands a response. It requires a response. So when you hear messages like today or wherever you listen to them at other times, they demand a response. Because the word of God is revelation. 
and it demands a response. And so every single time you encounter a message or a revelation, you are required to give a response. Now you might say, well, I haven't been given a response. Yes, you have. Your response has been nothing. Revelation requires response. In Paul's mind, it was necessary for us to say something in response to what God has revealed through him. You see, God's word is not information to be filed away. It's not given to us as an academic exercise. The word of God is given to us to act upon and obey and to respond to. And he goes on to say, if God is for us, who can ever be against us? Here's the second thing. God is for us. That's really what I want you to be motivated by today. Is that as a believer in Christ, God is for you. creator of everything, the creator of the universe, the one that spoke and it came into existence, the one that loves you so much that he would give his one and only son, Jesus, to come to this earth as a human. He came to the lowest point that he could possibly go. He wasn't born in a palace. He was born in a stable. And the thing about it is, is that he lived a sinless life. But guess what? It wasn't that he had an easy life. He experienced every weakness that you and I have experienced. It's just the difference between you and him is the fact that he overcame. But here's the thing about it is that because he faced every single weakness, he can be right there with you to help you overcome because he's already overcome. And to think that that God is for you. He's for me. Listen to what Matthew Henry said about this verse. He said, while God is for us and we keep in his love, we may with a holy boldness defy all the powers of darkness. So let Satan do his worst because he is chained. Let the world do its worst because it is conquered. Principalities and powers are spoiled and disarmed and triumphed over in the cross of Christ. Who then dare fights against us while God himself is fighting for us? I believe today that God is wanting to motivate someone here today to step out in confidence and be who God has called you to be. You've bought into this lie that you're not good, you're disqualified, God doesn't need you, and today I am here and I am prophetically declaring over somebody today 
that it is your day to step out and to become who he has called you to be. The days of you sitting back and waiting, they're over. The lie that you've been getting in your head is out today. It is out in Jesus' name because I am believing that today some in here need to step out in the confidence of who God says that he is. It's not about you. It's about him and about what he says and about his promise and about his way of doing things. Today is your day to step out in that confidence and be who God has called you to be. Now listen. I know that this is a challenge that's not just for you and I as individuals. But I believe that God is wanting to challenge us as a church today. As Cultivation Church today. That it's time for us to step out and to be who God has called us to be. You've heard me say this, that I believe we're to be our community church. And to be quite honest with you, and you know, I don't know how this is going to make you feel about me. But it's one of those things that I heard but I really didn't understand. I thought I did, but that's based on Matt Donnelly's definition. But I'm like thinking to myself, what does that really mean? I mean, it sounds good, rolls off the tongue good, but what? But, but are we just going to say that, or are we going to actually do it? Are we actually going to be it? And 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 I'm and I've been like, God, please, 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 give me what this looks like. So I came across this other article this week popped up in my news feed uh, that somebody shared uh, that I'm a group in in, in Facebook and um, it was out of the Redding, California newspaper and it was about Bethel Church now, you know what <clears throat> I, I love those guys I love what they're doing, I love what they're all about you might not agree with their total theology and that's okay, this article's not about their theology but I want you, I'm going to read parts of this article because I believe that when I read this, I was like, yes this is what this is what I'm looking for. This, when 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 uh, when I like God was almost saying, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna show you black and white on paper what this looks like. Now here's the thing, is that the title of this article that was in the Reading newspaper was the Bethel Effect. Mm. Reading's relationship with megachurch is complicated and productive. Now, one thing I do want you to not get so wrapped up in is that I don't necessarily have a vision to become a megachurch. I have a vision of planting other churches before we get there. So I don't want y'all to get caught up in that. But, you know, God will do what he wants to do. I'm just here to be obedient to what he's called us to do. So I'm not going to put him in a box, but just go with me here. It says this. Now, this is a an article in the Reading newspaper. This isn't in, like, Christian News Today. This is in the Reading newspaper. And it says this. Is, is this heaven or Reading? Question mark. Bethel Church, with 11,000-plus members, has almost has an almost supernatural commitment to making the North State city of 91,000 more like heaven. And here's what's interesting to me. I'm not saying that all 11,000 people that attend church there are a part or live in Reading, but it's pretty amazing to me that on any given Sunday, there's over 10% of the city's population and their church. Like, that's, that's just incredible to me. It's just... Um, and, and, and then it goes on to say, uh, but um, it, it says civic engagement is supposed to be uh, strategic and targeted. But Bethel's relationship with Wet Redding 
is broad and unstructured, grounded less in planning and activist jargon, but in the love of God in the city itself. Bethel's success in assisting Reading suggests broader, a broader lesson. Stop overthinking and throw yourself heart and soul into addressing your neighbor's needs. Look at what he, look at look at how they did this. When Reading's Civic Center, Civic Auditorium, was failing, Bethel helped start a nonprofit called Advance Reading to revive it, and they revived it. When the Reading Police Department was about to lay off four police officers, Bethel raised the money to keep the cops on. After the car fire, which was the wildfire that they experienced last summer, Bethel gave $1,000 in cash to every family, church member or not, who lost a home. It says this, that Bethel also has connected Reading to the world, establishing a global disaster response team, and even convincing United Airlines to start a daily nonstop service flight from Reading to LAX. And Bethel's School of Supernatural Ministry, a national leader in attracting foreign students, has internationalized the city. Bethel inspires service via two messages. First, it teaches that through God, individuals can experience miracles. And second, the church constantly celebrates Reading and highlights opportunities to join community projects. Here's what I'm saying. We as Cultivation Church need to start championing Covington, Louisiana. We need to start championing Vanderbilt, Louisiana. We need to start championing Madisonville, Louisiana. We need to start figuring out ways that we as a church can get involved with community projects so that we can reach into the very places that you and I call home and start making a difference in the place that we live instead of just living and taking up space. We as a church, you as individuals, we need to take ownership of the areas that we live in and we need to be involved, not so that we get recognized, but that God gets recognized so that somebody someday can write the cultivation effect in the local NOLA Times-Picayune North Shore edition. And it's not so that Cultivation Church gets the glory. It's because we're making an impact for Jesus in the area that we live in. Now listen to this quote. Bethel really encourages everybody to take ownership of the area, to live your faith in a way that's felt. Says Mayor Julie Winter, who is a church board member. The mayor of Reading sits on the church's board. And listen to this. Bethel says that God is for you, so who can be against you? That's kind of funny that it happens to be the verse that I was preaching on, and I found this article after the fact. This is what drew me to it. And, and, and she goes, so why not start that new business? Why not volunteer to make the city an amazing place? Why not, in my case, run for city council? Do you realize she was sitting in a chair at Bethel, and Bethel encouraged her to step out and to be who God has called her to be. She ran for city council and then eventually becomes mayor of the city. She never makes it to that spot without the church being there and God using that place as a way to motivate her to become who God had called her to be. Now, Bill Johnson says that God works mysteriously and sometimes he takes the small things to declare a big message. It's one thing if you do a great work through a great place. It's another if you do a great work through a place that most everyone would overlook. But that's God's nature. God tends to work through broken people and broken things. Amen. So guess what? He's not waiting on you to get your act together. 
He's not waiting for you to be exactly this pristine, perfect person because he has a knack for taking broken people and broken things and doing something miraculous to declare a big message. Why? Because that way he gets all of the glory. He gets all of the credit. Because I guarantee you, something great happens to this place. It is certainly not because Matt Donnelly did anything. Because I feel like Paul sometimes. I'm the worst of sinners. Sometimes I feel inadequate. Sometimes I feel discouraged. Sometimes I feel like, are we ever going to be making a difference as a church in this community? But can I tell you something? I was actually discouraged until I read this article. And you might be saying to yourself, well, man, we can't raise four police officers' salaries. We can't give $1,000 to everybody that deals with a tragedy. We can't uh, rebuild something in our city that's decap that, that's, uh, that's not um, flourishing or run down or whatever. Well, guess what? These guys didn't start there. They didn't start there. They grew into that. In fact, when Bill Johnson took that church in 1996, they had 150 people. So you look at the growth that they experienced in, what, 23 years? 23 years, they go from 150 to over 11,000. In 23 years, maybe they just dealt with one person, helping one person in their community, and now they get to help thousands of people in their community. We got to start somewhere, Cultivation Church. We got to start somewhere. You know what the Bible says? Don't despise the day of small beginnings. I'm here to tell you today, something has to shift. Something has to happen. And I am telling you as the lead pastor of this place, today is the day that we will step out as a church and we will become who God has called us to be in this community, which is to be our community church. We don't really have all the financial means necessarily to do a big outreach like we're about to do, but guess what? We're going to do it. You know why? Because we need to be in that community. We need to love on the community. We need to show that we're there. But that's not all that we need to do. We don't need to attract people to cultivation churches things. We need to start being involved in things that are going on in our area that's not put on by us, not provided by us. And we need to get our hands dirty a little bit. We need to be inconvenienced a little bit. We need our schedules to be shifted a little bit so that we can go ahead and start making the impact that God desires for us to make in this community. Amen. So I'm making a commitment to you that we will start looking into community projects that we can be involved with, that we can say we're ready, we're willing, we're here, we're going to go to work. Comes back up. We need to be a go and make church. But the only way that we're going to do this is that we need to become a go and make people. Now I can sit here and do all the research all day. I can provide the opportunities. But until we as individuals decide to step up to the plate and become a part of what we're wanting and desiring to do, then we'll just stay exactly where we're at right now. I don't want to leave you today without some practical application. So, I want to give you five simple ways, really quick, that we can use to help us become go and make people. Here's number one. 
We need to be a people of prayer. We need to pray. Prayer is what activates God to move. You know, I, I can get up here and I can I can give you a, 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 a book on every community activity that we can be involved with. And we can go and we can be involved with it. And we can put in hours and we can do volunteer work and we can build this and we can do this. But if it's not built on a foundation of prayer, then it's all for nothing. It's all for nothing. Remember, one of the things we said is that before we talk to people about Jesus, maybe we need to talk to Jesus about the people. We need to pray. We need to live a lifestyle of prayer. You know what? Beautiful words and impassioned speeches and messages like today may move a soul, but they cannot transform a hard heart. Only the power of the Holy Spirit can bring conviction and repentance. Here's number two, the word. We have got, 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 got to become people of the word. The word is alive, and we need to take hold of that. I've gotten to a place right now where I'm like, I don't know what I would do without it. Some days I read verses, some days I read chapters. But all I know is I've got to have the word. I've got to have it. I've got to have it. Can I say that when you make a commitment to the word, it just becomes that much more alive. We've had moments where we haven't opened up our Bibles in weeks, months. We open it up and we feel encouraged. Can I tell you, my goodness, what would it be if you got that every single day? Here's number three, your story. Your story. We all have a story. If we've come to know Christ and have experienced forgiveness of sin and his transforming power in our lives, then we have a story to tell. Can I tell you something about your story? Is nobody can tell you that it's not true. Right? I mean, nobody can debate you on your story. Now, they can debate you on theology. They can debate you on denomination. They can debate you on all these other things. But when you tell them, man, this is where I was, this is where I am now, and it's nothing but Jesus, nobody can refute that. Nobody can debate that. It's your story. Tell your story. Share your story. I heard this yesterday. It was actually on a football bike on the NFL network. How crazy is that? God's going to share something. People do that. You know what the guy said? He said, the greatest message that I will ever preach is the life that I live. The greatest message that you will ever preach is your story, is your life. Why? Because that tells the story of Jesus. Because your story is Jesus' story. I was lost, but now I'm found. I was sick, but now I'm well. I was dead, but now I'm alive. Here's the fourth thing. You gotta have the right attitude. You gotta have the right attitude. First Corinthians 13 verses 1 through 3 says this, if I could speak all the languages of the earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. 
If I had the gift of prophecy, and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I did not love others, I would have gained nothing. You see, we don't do anything when it comes to Jesus. See, when we make it about doing something, then it becomes legalistic. When it becomes about doing something, it becomes more law than it becomes grace. When it becomes about doing something, then we get to have a tally sheet and we can judge other people. When it comes to Jesus, it's not about what you do, it's about what you become. And you got to become love. And the only way that you can become love is to invite love himself into your life and to start allowing him to guide and direct you. you got to have the right attitude. And then here's the fifth thing. It's about obedience, not results. It's about obedience, not results. Because... Here's the thing. I think sometimes we get caught up in, well, how many people did you lead to Jesus today? How many people did you lead to Jesus this week? How many people did you lead to Jesus this year? Well, what am I supposed to say if I said one? But I preached to thousands. I shared my story with thousands. You know, Paul came across this similar argument, and guess what he said? He said, guess what? It doesn't matter whose camp you're involved with, whether it's you're for me or you're for Apollos. Guess what? I planted, he watered, but at the end of the day, it's God who makes it grow. I mean, yes, we are going for souls, but more than that, we got to be obedient to speak to the soul that he's called us to speak to. We talked about that last week. That, that Jesus took Philip right out of the situation and said, I've got you over here in the desert place ministering to an Ethiopian eunuch. You were succeeding in ministry here. And people were getting saved. But guess what? I care about the one. So here's what I want us to put this kind of into practice in the next several weeks leading up to Easter. Okay, so as you leave today, you're going to get one of these. Okay, and I think we have a picture of it on the uh, the screen. Okay, it's just a it's just a basic card. It says Easter on it so that you remember what it's for. But it says invite five, bring one. Invite five, bring one. Okay, now here's what I want you to do. I want you to take this and I want you to write five people, five people's names. And I'm not talking about your friend that goes to the church down the road. I'm talking about the people that don't know Jesus in your life. Okay? And I want you to write their names on here. And here's what I want you to begin. I want you to begin praying. I want you to pray over them. Pray for them. Pray that God would, would get a hold of them. Pray that God would open up a way for you to communicate with them. Do something. Just, just pray. Pray. Pray, 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 pray. I want you to get in your word and start praying scripture over these five people. Start praying. Start praying. 
man, Jesus, you know what? If, 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 if you were so on purpose to go down a road and look up in a tree and see a guy named Zacchaeus and say that I'm here to seek and save the lost, then, then, then Lord, send somebody down the path and please send me. Please send me. But get in the Word. Start reading Scripture over there. Then, maybe you get the opportunity to share your story with these five people. Maybe you're friends with them and they never have heard your story. I'm not talking about a story. I'm talking about your story. You talked about what happened on the local television network uh, with, with, with The Voice or this or that or, or whatever it is that you watch and you know, you're telling them, you, you know, you watch this and such, and so y'all get on the phone, y'all start talking about the latest episode, and my goodness, like this, but have you shared your story with them? Have you shared your story? And then have the right attitude. Come at it with an attitude of love, not with an attitude of judgment. Not saying, I'm right, you're wrong. That's not going to get you anywhere. You just need to love them. You need to love them. It's the Holy Spirit that will bring the conviction. It's his kindness that will lead people to repentance. Guess how they're going to see his kindness? They're going to see it through you. I mean, look, it's about obedience, not results. That's why it's not about bringing the five. It's about bringing the one. Invite five. Pray for five. Share your story with five, but bring one. You see, when you start praying and you start doing those things with the five, guess what's going to happen? Seeds are going to be planted. Seeds are going to get watered. And then let's bring the one and let's see God make it grow. So I want you to make sure you get one of these. Take it. Let's, let's, let's pray over them. Let's believe God. And that's my challenge to you with this message. I don't really feel like an altar call today. I don't feel like there's, I, I just, this is like, like we got to start the coming. And this is how we start the coming. All right? So won't you stand with me all over this place? I'm going to pray. And then I'm going to dismiss you. But I want to make sure you get one of these today.